Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Joseph Illich, Editorial Director of Wave Blue World. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. We've had a conversation before. So those of you who read my column on Media Village, I had a chance to sit down with Joseph and we went through a lot of his career, his perspective on comics, graphic novels, which that's now the, the uni culture. So it bleeds into a lot of different things. But I want to give him an opportunity to kind of walk through his career path. And then I want to focus very specifically on a transition that you made somewhat recently and a letter around that. So I'll let you go into details of where you've worked, how you've come to these positions and all that good stuff. I started in the comic book and graphic novel industry in 1993 at a company called Milestone Media. Milestone Media was one of the first Black-owned comic book companies. It was the first one to have a publishing deal with an industry giant, which was DC Comics. I started there as an intern and then made my way to the business department and then moved over to editorial. So that's where I started my editorial career. After that, I actually did a short stint at Simon & Schuster, working in their Star Trek division with their Star Trek novels, fiction, nonfiction, coffee table books. And then I moved over to DC Comics, where I was the first editor of color in the Batman editorial department. And I worked there for three years during a time where the Batman department did a groundbreaking one-year storyline called Batman No Man's Land, which was a 52-week story about the fall and rise of Gotham and how Gotham City became a feudal society. And then basically the cops and Batman and his forces had to take the city back. After that, I took a bit of a departure from comic books and more into book publishing and learned about production and how books came together and the beauty of books. And that would later inform my future editorial pursuits in terms of the relationship between content and the packaging of content. I later returned to comics at a company called Archaea. I was there for a year and a half. After that, I became a columnist for Comic Book Resources. I did a column called The Mission, which explored diversity in business and entertainment behind the scenes with the fictional characters. Then I would go over to Lion Forge Comics, where I was the senior editor and spearheaded a multicultural superhero universe line called Catalyst Prime. From there, I was at Valiant Entertainment, serving as the executive editor. And now I am at A Wave Blue World as an editorial director. And with that, I am also writing various graphic novel projects, which will be announced soon. I think it's safe to say you've covered a lot of ground, right? So That, that would be fair to say, yep. yeah. That description goes through some of the legendary, iconic names within the comic book industry, within the graphic novel industry. You've seen different types of books, different types of platforms have all been a part of your career journey. And what's interesting as someone who's been a fan of comics as far as back as I can remember, 
is you've accomplished this in an environment that I think is, is safe to say is still struggling with and wrestling with diversity. So walking into a milestone media, walk me through a little bit about why that was so significant to the beginning of your career. I've been reading comics for almost as long as I've been alive. It goes back to the second grade. Every Friday, my mom and I, after work, we would go to a newsstand on a corner of Church Avenue and Nostrand Avenue in Brooklyn, and she would buy herself soap opera magazines, and she would buy me comics. So I've been reading comics from the early days, and it really became clear to me that that could be a career when I walked into the Milestone offices for the first time in May of 1993, and I saw a comic book company run by four black men. And once you walk through the door and see that beyond the four color pages, then things take a different type of shape for you. There's something about visualization. And to see that real, that's when I realized that this could be a career. This could be more than a hobby. This could be a career. And that day was the day that really set me on the path to have a career in comic books. And Milestone, I think it's fair to say, beyond what they accomplished as a publishing house, was also instrumental to bringing different types of voices to the table, meaning people who were not traditionally from the world of comics. It sounds like they had a lot of creativity just walking in the door to make the company a vibrant place. Definitely. One of the founders who was the president and is a president of the current iteration of Milestone, Derek Dingle, came from Black Enterprise and works at Black Enterprise Magazine now. He's a high-ranking officer there. Dwayne McDuffie came from comics. Dennis Cowan came from comics. Michael Davis, who was the fourth founder, came from entertainment and came into comics. What these four men had in common was their love for the stories, was their love for the comic book medium. There was actually a fifth founder, Christopher Priest, who's well known for his seminal Black Panther run, which heavily informed the Black Panther film. Christopher Priest left before the book started publishing in 1993. But again, you know, what all these men shared was their love for comics, but also their understanding that the comic book industry historically excluded them and it excluded people that represented the other. And the other basically encompassed people of color, people who were disabled, people who were not heterosexual. And so when the Milestone universe came into being, it had characters from these different backgrounds, different lifestyles, and it had creators and staffers from those lifestyles as well. So you basically had a sense of authentic points of view that were informing the comic books because it was informing our lives every day. And so there was never a company like that before Milestone to that degree. There were other Black-owned comic book companies, one of which was called Ania, And the difference, or one of the differences between Ania and Milestone was because Milestone had the publishing deal with DC Comics, it gave them a larger reach. And that larger reach would end up resulting in the popularity of certain characters today 
most notably Static Shock and the Static Shock cartoon that Warner Brothers would end up putting out later. When you talk about that challenge of diversity, something I cited earlier myself, and coming from the fan perspective only, coming up at the same times, what was always so problematic to me, even I didn't have that language at the time, but I would go to conventions and I would go to shows. I have my local comic book store on Utica and an Avenue H. It's no longer there, but they were like my home shop. I remember Avenue H Comics. I shopped there quite a few times. That was my shop. So when I would go to these different environments where you had these fantastic stories being acted out between the pages, but yet in the reality of living in these worlds, you didn't see yourself. It was such a disconnect. And it felt, you know, as a a black guy growing up in Brooklyn, like I was the only one. Right. And I'm, I'm curious if you had similar thoughts before you walked into Milestone or what was your transition to not feeling like I'm the only black person who likes these things. I knew that I wasn't the only black person that liked them, but we're talking about the 80s and the 90s. And basically my experience as a young black man living in New York is that I was looked down on. I was looked down on for liking comic books, reading comics, being a nerd, being a geek. Those were not good things at that time. My father died when I was 10 years old. I'm an only child. So I went into my high school years having friends who were kind of like the people that were kind of like the big brothers getting me through life. And one of the things that they would tell me is, Joe, you're not going to get any sex if you keep talking about these comic books. Like, you're going to have to chill with this stuff. And You know, I didn't have the savvy to do that. I was what I was. And so it was challenging growing up at a time when liking what you liked was seen as a negative. When if I'm riding home on the four train, I had to hide my comic books inside my math books, things like that. Walking into the doors of Milestone I think actually gave it a kind of validity that those things that I liked, that those forms of fiction that got me through some tough times, that I was not wrong for liking them, that my decision to like them was valid, and that as a human being, that I was valid. So that's what it did. And I think the power of this world is that you talked about in our interview, the hero's journey. and. I think what you're also walking through here, in addition to that hero's journey, is a journey of acceptance, right? A a journey of of realization and, and finding your home in a way. Definitely. You know, again, when I was growing up as a Black person, I was constantly assaulted by what the definition of Black was. I had Black people telling me that I was white. I had white people clearly telling me that I was black. I had society telling me that I was black. So again, Milestone was a place where it was a company run by black people. We spoke about these issues every day, issues in the world, issues in the stories. And so that was a place where you were not told the definition of what black was. You were not told who you were. You were allowed to be who you were. So In that sense, it was truly exemplary of what you want out of a business, out of a creative environment, 
out of a community, out of a micro society. That was really important to me. And this happened in the early 90s. You know, Milestone started publishing in 1993. That was a year that Wu-Tang Clan came out. There was something in the air. There was something in the culture that the 90s were representing this major shift of unapologetic expression of Black people and people from different cultures. So it was a really an exciting time to enter the comic book industry. And it was an amazing company to enter the comic book industry with. Let's fast forward to, I think the current marketplace is clearly dominated by, let's call them superhero narratives. You okay. know, not to be reductive that there's fantasy within that, there's science fiction, there's magic elements, there's gaming, there's a ton of things. Right. But I'm going to hold us to the superhero narrative just okay. for simplicity while knowing that that captures a lot of stuff. And we're seeing a pretty much wide acceptance to this, right? both within the general culture and then within Black culture. Like, I feel they're both sort of aligning to you can be who you are across the board. You don't no longer have to keep this a secret. Right. What do you think has been a part of that sea change into making what was once niche cultures now very much not just the mainstream, but influencing the mainstream. Yeah, it's really tricky. There are so many possible touch points, you know, going back to the hero's journey, what's intrinsic in superhero narratives is the journey from selfishness to selflessness, the idea of great accomplishment with one's life in a finite amount of time. These are themes that, as human beings, we respond to a great deal. And the superhero narrative, the genre, is probably the greatest distillation of that human want, that human need. And part of the sea change really comes to the tenacity of people of color, of queer people, of our allies, whom over the years slowly opened the doors as much as corporations allowed them to, to other voices. So for example, one of the things that we spoke about earlier was the Static Shock cartoon and how the Static Shock cartoon really represents an origin point for an entire generation that was their first exposure to a black superhero. That would come about because even though Milestone was not publishing on a monthly basis at the time, Warner Brothers wanted a cartoon with a young black male superhero. And they went through the entire library of the DC universe, which goes back to the 30s, and they couldn't find one. But someone found Static. And Static was in the Milestone universe. And that would end up leading to Dwayne McDuffie, one of the founders of Milestone, editor-in-chief, one of the co-creators of Static, well-known in comic books and animation, that would end up leading to his career in animation, which would then go on to him writing Ben 10, Justice League Unlimited, All-Star Superman, and things like that. But it came down to, because of the Milestone DC relationship, and because at a certain point in time, a corporation was looking for a young black male superhero to speak to young black men and recognizing young black men as a significant demographic that this came into being. So 
this sea change has been happening over decades. It's much like civil rights. It's much like any change in our social structure in terms of policy. From a general perspective, it looks like Black Panther came out of nowhere. Black Panther came out of decades of a lot of people making efforts and making sacrifices to get us to a moment like that. That willingness to connect dots, to look at things that are seemingly disconnected and finding common ground in them. So when you mention Wu-Tang Clan, for example, I think about when I would go outside on the block and I would make sure I was home to see the Saturday afternoon Kung Fu flicks. Yep. yep. Right. So that was like three o'clock drive-in movies, channel five. That's it. And you would watch whatever it was, right? Whatever the flick was they showed. And then you'd come outside and kill all your friends trying to like, (laughs) you know, replicate the moves and and all the rest of it. And I'm like, those dudes in Wu-Tang were having that same experience in Staten Island and Brooklyn and different parts where they were as I was having. And that came to life in their music. Right. And it became an identity. And we're seeing you're having your experience. I'm having my experience. And they're all kind of coalescing as we come of age in the 90s. So there isn't any one thing that's happening. It's a bunch of different things that's that's happening. It's kind of like Pharrell coming out of band culture Mm -hmm. at a time when when I first saw skateboards, it was the Brady Bunch. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. black guys don't skateboard. That's right. But he came along at a slightly different time a geek in band culture and also part of skateboard culture was another thing that kind of segued. So I bring all that up to talk about that complexity of culture. And it sounds like you're finding those connective tissues in this world. Right. It's important that we realize occurrences do not exist in a vacuum and occurrences are actually the culmination of movement. So we talk about Wu-Tang Clan. Part of the brilliance of Wu-Tang Clan is that Wu-Tang Clan actually used the dynamics of a superhero team. So if you look at the DC comics of the 1940s, there was a group called the Justice Society, and they would go on these missions, and what would happen is they would break up in like teams of two and each handle a particular enemy, and then they would come back together for the final battle. And the Wu-Tang Clan had this structure where they were a group But then the members could break off, do their own individual albums. But then when they came back, they just destroyed the ground. They shattered it again. And the Wu-Tang Clan had secret identities. They had alternate names. And they were actually using the names of comic book characters like Tony Stark and Johnny Blaze. So they used the language and dynamics of the superhero to set themselves apart from any other group. And when you look at general culture, if you're talking about hip hop, if you're talking about gang culture, even if you talk about global culture, like my mom is from Jamaica and I have family in the Bahamas. And, you know, whether you're talking about certain black cultures, Latino cultures, people have their birth names and then they have their nicknames. And so the idea of the alter ego, the secret identity, the second name, these come from different places. And Wu-Tang Clan really understood how to bring it all together into one place. And I think that's one of the reasons why they are a global phenomenon. 
it's interesting because when we talk about identity, when we talk about shifting who we are, and this is just an aside, I think about the world in which we live in around surveillance. When we think about how do we move in certain spaces to protect ourselves, to Mm -hmm. live, to put just Mm -hmm. enough of ourselves out there, but not too much out there. And that's becoming more of an issue. So some of this is beyond the pop culture. It's survival techniques. Absolutely. You know, when you're talking about people having two different names, that could literally come down to a situation where the cops are looking for somebody with one name and you could literally be talking about that person in front of the cops using their other name and the cops don't know it, but that's you and your society using your code language. And these kind of things come up when you're talking about navigating in spaces that are not fully accepting of us or want us to some degree neuter the full expression of our identity. So we have to code switch and go back and forth so that we operate in one way in certain circles and then we operate in different ways, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our neighborhoods. And like you're saying, this speaks to survival. This goes back to slavery and slave songs and slave songs incorporating code language that the slave masters wouldn't understand, but the slaves certainly would understand. This is something that is still present in our society today. We're using certain types of language and terms in social media, among ourselves in conversation, so that we can, as you said, survive. And part of surviving is being able to communicate with one another freely without an immediate threat of assault or separation. And communicate sometimes across space when you think about the way music was used among those who were enslaved to communicate with each other. That's right. And co-opting the few times you would be able to gather, which is a church or religious type of ceremony Mm -hmm. as Christianity becomes the dominant archetype, but you use that moment of community to be subversive. Right. Community and sanctuary. There are points of sanctuary. The church was, and in some ways continues to be a sanctuary. And now we have different types of sanctuaries. I think about on the comic side, I might have this wrong, but it was one of the origin stories for Superman. I think it was All-Star Superman. It might've been a different one, but it was one of the best representations I saw graphically of Superman becoming Clark Kent. Right. One of the jokes of people who are casual is like, oh, it's so dumb. He puts on glasses and all of a sudden he's not the same person. Right, right. But it was more in the comic frames. It was him shrinking himself, becoming a smaller person. That's right. It always struck me as one of the best ways in which you can hide in plain sight. Superman and Batman in their alter egos as Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent were brilliant in that they were acting. And as you said, they had to become different people so that they would seem less threatening. Part of it is that you want to fit in, but part of it is you want to seem non-threatening in this society. So Batman, when he becomes Bruce Wayne, he has to seem shallow. He has to seem like he's a gigolo, like he is unable to tie his own tie without the help of Alfred. 
Clark Kent has evolved a bit over the years, but you know, Clark Kent specifically chose journalism so he could know where crises were happening in his city and all over the world so that he could attend to them. There's a reason that he didn't become a member of the CIA. There's a reason he did not become an architect, right? So these decisions, even within the secret identities, key into the themes of the characters. I want to talk about, and we prepped a little bit for this, but in that career arc that you, that you talked about, you've been a lot of different places. You've seen a lot of different things. Yes. But one of the points I want to spend a little time on is when you left Valiant, you penned this letter discussing why you were, were leaving, why you were making this transition. It really struck me, not just because of the pros, but I think you touched on a lot of things that were happening in that particular moment, both personally and in the industry. You identified shifts in how people were going to create, what were going to be the avenues open to them, who was going to participate in the sea change. Can you walk me through a little bit about your thought process as you made that decision to leave Valiant and why you thought the letter was an important thing to put out there into the world publicly? One of the things is that in the comic book industry and in the world at large, we are really under siege by toxic narratives, narratives of negativity, narratives of uninformed and harsh criticism. And one of the things that I wanted to say to the comic book community and the entertainment community at large is that this is a very exciting time. It's a very exciting time to create comic books. It's a very exciting time for larger than life narratives. Basically, if you have an idea, you have so many options by which to get it to an audience. There are web comics. There's Kickstarter, which is funding creative endeavors to make comics. There are more publishers interested in producing stories from unique visions than ever before. This is no longer the near exclusive dominance of Marvel and DC. So the ideas that are coming from independent creators are really impacting our global culture, Walking Dead being one of the most prominent examples. Now with a number of streaming channels, you're getting to see more of them. You have The Boys on Amazon. You have various different stories coming out. There is a movie with Charlize Theron called The Old Guard, which is coming out, which is based off of an image comic created by Greg Rucka and Michael Lark, Preacher, which is on AMC, based off of a comic book. You have this explosion of different universes on all the media. And so one thing that I really wanted to, I guess, help amplify is that this is an exciting time. And as I see myself as a servant to story, that means that it's my duty to work with creative minds to help them put out the best stories. And those stories can take the initial form of comic books and extend into different media. So that was important. It was important to be positive because we have enough toxic narratives. It was important to really put a spotlight on the visionary creative minds that are creating stories on a regular basis. And I really wanted to speak to how within my career, whenever I worked at a company, 
that I was part of a team and those teams did things to break ground and push opportunities forward and push ideas forward and extend a hand to bring people forward. That's something that I believe in, in my life and in my vocation. It's interesting that you talk about this idea of what you're putting out into the world and there being this toxicity to our environments. And I framed this when I was making my notes is that sometimes the stories reflect your times. And I think it's fair to say, at least from my perspective, sometimes it feels like we're living in times where the bad guys are winning, Mm -hmm. right? Like the Mm -hmm. villains are consistently coming out on top. Mm -hmm. And I preface that by saying I do recognize that there's movement to the opposite. We're seeing on the ground movements, whether it's demonstrations in in Lebanon and in Hong Kong and in Chile and people like Greta Thunberg are like real life superheroes, AOC and all these people who are out there fighting the good fight. So even as sometimes there are dark moments, there are people in movements and places that are fighting and consistently fighting. So that's my editorial on that. But on the larger zeitgeist, I think it can feel like, what the hell, man? Like the bad guys are consistently winning this. And How do you feel about that as a premise, one? And then how do we push back narratively against that concept? So in a real life context, my wife is a journalist. She's been fighting for election integrity for a decade and a half. And, you know, she was fighting that fight when most of the world thought that she was crazy. And it took the 2016 election to really wake the masses up to the understanding that the integrity of elections is important. For myself, working in comic books on narratives of inclusion, I've been doing that since the 90s. And this is something that has come more into focus now. So one of the things is that our efforts are not going to result in immediate gratification. We live in a world in which we're being hardwired to believe that everything should result in immediate gratification, but that's just not true. Change is going to come over decades and consistent effort and people of like minds finding one another and creating movements insofar as, you know, in a fictional context, you know, how do we do that? We do it through story. Fiction is our food. We live off of narratives. Narratives are in our DNA whether we understand them or not. And we need stories. We need things to inspire us. We need things to remind us that we're not alone. We need things to get us to get out of bed in the morning. Some of those stories are fiction. Some of those stories are real. We recently lost Elijah Cummings, but his story is an inspiring story. In terms of villainy, you know, it's funny. I was actually talking with someone about this on Twitter the other day, DC Comics has this big event happening right now that is probably going to go on for a year called Year of the Villain, where the villains are basically ascending and taking out all the heroes, and in some cases, maybe even converting some heroes to villains. And the person said, the world is bad enough. Why do this company think this is a good idea? And I said that basically... Because when the heroes overcome that, when they overcome the year of the villain, their light will shine brighter. 
it will be more brilliant and heroism will glow and heroism will be more potent and they will be stronger and they will have overcome this. And that's part of the journey. So when we think about what's happening in our nation that is becoming more xenophobic and more sexist and more classist, and we're talking about what's happening to our brothers and sisters in the UK with Brexit, and let's make no mistake, those are our brothers and sisters of humanity, right? So these things that we're going through now, what this will do is it will galvanize us to fight and it will galvanize us to find one another and work together and it will make us understand how much grit we have as human beings, how much grit we have as communities, and we are going to get past these worst times, but we're going to have to fight to do it. That's the reality of life. That's the reality of drama. And when we think about the stories and the people that have influenced us through our lives, we've seen people fall. We've seen people die, um, taken too early from us, but their actions made other people get up. What we're going through now is to galvanize us to get up. That concludes part one of the deep dive conversation with Joseph Illich. Joseph and I discuss how geek culture has broken out to such an extent it now drives and influences the mainstream. We investigated the power of the hero's journey and why these narratives resonate so deeply, particularly in challenging times. In part two, Joseph and I will complete our episode journey with off-the-cuff takes on Joker, Watchmen, and more. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and at thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.